Houston. Man, that was good. I, I'm looking forward to when we can come back together. I, I was, that was a good set, and I know the quality may not be exactly the same at home as it is here in the house, but uh, one of these days soon we'll be back together, and those three songs would have been outstanding with everybody together. So praise God. Uh, if you're joining us from your Adult Bible Fellowship, we're glad that uh, you uh, have unplugged and replugged into the main worship service. We're glad to have you this morning. Looking forward to, I'm looking at all your uh, faces here in a, in a virtual way. Uh, with little uh, 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 the little smiley faces on our chairs, so we got a full house actually. If you look, at, if you count it that way, so it's really incredible to be here with y'all. And then, uh, if you're a guest or you're someone that's joining us, maybe a friend that's checking in, we're glad that you're joining us this morning. If you have a Bible, we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 25. You know, uh, when you have good news, you just want to share it, and uh, you know, it's incredibly. Usually when you have good news, you're happy. There's a birth of a baby, something exciting's happening, you're excited, you want to share the good news. But you know, the Apostle Paul had to wait over two years, and he's kind of going through kangaroo court, and he has to keep appearing before people. And if, it was, if he was like me, he might be a little frustrated. But this morning, we're going to see that Paul is not frustrated at all, and his opportunity comes uh, to give Agrippa an opportunity to hear the good news. He shares it. And sharing Christ is something that we are all called to do. If you're born again this morning, it should be in your DNA. We're studying the DNA of what it is to be a believer. We're studying the book of Acts and understanding that as we uh, wrap up this last uh, church age that we should be very much like the church of the very uh, the first church age as we have the same spiritual DNA. We just, we just sang a song about being built upon the foundation of Christ and and uh, we are built on the foundation of Christ as a church, as individuals. Uh, we are rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so, by God's grace, if we're saved, uh, then it should just be our, our nature then to want to share the good news. And if we're good disciples and good disciplers, we're going to be evangelizing. We're going to be sharing our faith because good discipleship is good evangelism. And uh, good evangelism comes from good discipleship. So, if we're not sharing our faith effectively... Well, we're not really discipling effectively. And so the ABCs of sharing your testimony are pretty simple. And I'm going to be talking about really just some really important aspects of practical things in the next couple of weeks that you can actually pick up and use right, right now. I mean, as soon as we say amen or maybe before, uh, you can use these principles that we're going to be looking at. But just real simply, if you're ever sharing your testimony, if you have a testimony, what it, you may be watching going, what is a testimony? Uh, you know, is that when I'm in court? No, this, well, kind of. You're being judged by the Spirit of God. When you become a Christian, it should, should be our, our nature to share our testimony, what we call our testimony. It's our story. It's the past, the present, and the future. How we uh, came, how, what we were like before Christ, how we came to, to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scripture, and how we, we uh, humbly, with contrition, came before the Lord and, and received Christ as Lord and Savior. And then, then going forward from that, how we got to where we are today and then what we're trusting the Lord for tomorrow. And if you're born again, that is your story. And it, and it should be your story. And if that's not your story, then you might want to go back and, and uh, you might want to listen closely because I want to give you some further instructions on how you can know the Lord even this morning. But that's really the, the DNA, the essence of, uh, it's in our DNA to share that good news of how we came to know Christ and and that's really what Paul is doing this morning, and he does it very powerfully. This is really, uh, we've heard Paul already share his testimony a couple of times in the book of Acts, and we've read it, of course, in Acts chapter 9, literally, which was probably the most impressive account is, is actually the blow-by-blow in Acts chapter 9 of how he came to faith. But this is a really good example. It's a really good uh, uh, illustration on how we should also be willing and able 
to share our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's a powerful personal testimony. And I tell you, there's no better way to share the gospel than let people know how it's working for you. And uh, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in this chapter, in Acts chapter 26. So Paul does all the things that makes a testimony powerful and personal. But that is not just because of Paul. It's really because of recounting what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in his life. And you may say, well, man, I don't have an account like Paul. But the reality is if you are born again, you have a testimony. And God will use it powerfully if we will share it in his power. So before we jump into the nuts and bolts of how... how uh, God has created this opportunity to share Christ with Agrippa. Let's rewind and remember the environment in which God opened the door of utterance to the Apostle Paul. And he's in Acts chapter 25, and I'm going to rewind the tape. So we're going to do a little intro into chapter 26, and we'll work our way through the first eight verses this morning of chapter 26. But starting back in Acts chapter 25, in verse 23, I'm just going to read this text. If you're at home and you feel like standing, you can do that. That's what we do sometimes at HBF in honor of God's Word. You might get your whole family. You can just stand up, open the Bible, open your app, whatever you're looking at. And uh, don't be, I would, uh, I would encourage you. Oh, look, there's a few people in house doing that. Praise the Lord. So I, I would, uh, I wasn't actually even thinking about y'all, but praise the Lord. I was just, uh, I, I was just, uh, I was just thinking about this. You know, sometimes you can sit at home and get a little kind of lazy, you know. And so uh, this would be good, actually. Maybe you need to, uh, maybe you should put in the chat box right now, I'm standing up. I'm standing for Jesus. That'd be a good way to start off this message because Paul is getting ready to stand for Jesus. So uh, we're in Acts chapter 25, and we're going to be looking down here in, uh, in verse 23. The apostle Paul has now uh, is being, getting ready to go on, on uh, not really trial, but another inquisition. Um, there's nothing that's going to change his fate regarding going to Caesar. But this man, Agrippa, who he's about to witness to, is being introduced. And I want to just remind you of all the pomp and all the circumstance surrounding the environment in which the Apostle Paul is going to be preaching the gospel. So we start in chapter 25, verse 23, and it says in verse 23, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice, with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city at Festus's commandment, Paul was brought forth. And so Paul, Paul comes into this incredible meeting with all of that pomp and, and all the circumstance surrounding it. And it says this, that Paul, this is an announcement that, that comes from Festus. And we find that Pe- Festus is able to have a very loud voice and presence. And he says in verse 24, uh, Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, <clears throat> you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me both at Jerusalem and also here crying. He ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he was committed, uh, when he uh, had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself uh, hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I brought him forth before you and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal signify the crimes laid against him. I can just imagine the great big booming voice, uh, you know, that he had. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we think about uh, this introduction uh, of Agrippa and uh, the opportunity that Paul's about to have uh, to open his mouth and share the gospel. Lord, there is nothing more important than what was going on in your throne room. 
And as Festus is, is bellowing out and, and making a big deal about King Agrippa, Lord, the, the angels are in the third heaven saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are on your throne today. And Lord, there is nothing and there is no one greater than you this morning. I pray in a mighty way as we look at this passage that you might open it up to us in a way that would be fresh this morning. Uh, many of us know this story, but Lord, may you move us out of this message today to do what you saved us to do. May you quicken us in a fresh way today to accomplish your mission and your power for your glory. For we know that you love people. We know that you put this church in the heart of America. You've given us a heart for people. And may we actually display that by showing the love of Christ. We thank you and sharing the love of Christ. We thank you and we praise you and we ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you. I'm, I'm so used to this virtual thing, I was shocked when I said stand up and someone stood up, actually. So, uh, man, I'm out of practice myself. So, praise the Lord. Thank you all. You encouraged me. We have essential folks in the house that stood up with us. So, this morning, I'm not going to get into everything in Acts chapter 26, but let me just give you a quick outline of where we are going in the next couple of weeks. In this chapter, you're going to see the power of personal testimony. Number one, and we're going to take, park the car on, verse, on this first uh, part for a couple of weeks, it's understandable. It's understandable. Paul communicates in a way that nobody can miss it. They're there to, because, well, Festus is a little confused about what's going on. But by, by the time we get to chapter uh, 26 and verse 23, Festus knows exactly what Paul's talking about. And he de- he's demonstrative in that. But you'll have to wait until next week to get into that. Because uh, he gets demonstrative because it's uncomfortable. Sometimes when we preach the gospel, it makes folks a little uncomfortable, a little edgy. And we'll talk about that next week. And then the last thing is that when we are right with God and we're, and we're doing what God has called us to do, no matter what happens, man, our testimony, we've been talking about it for several weeks. We're blameless, right? We're unassailable. There's nothing that can happen to Paul. He is completely in God's perfect will. And there is no weapon formed against him that will prosper. Man, I pray that you're encouraged this morning. I pray that that enough will jazz you up. Maybe we should just say amen and go home, man. I mean, that's just an outline of this thing. It's a great chapter. But this morning we're going to talk about how powerful, powerful testimonies are understandable. And if you do have an outline and you're following along, that's your first uh, blank is understandable. Uh, and, and so let's just talk about some aspects of what makes a powerful testimony understandable. Uh, First of all, we're going to see that it it must be respectful. Let's look at the text in chapter 26 and see what happens here. There's all this pomp and all this circumstances going on, and then Agrippa finally speaks. He's very brief. He says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, as everybody's listening quietly, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. That's it. That's all he said. Because he's the man. He's the king. He's man of few words. He's got all the authority. And he just says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And so all this attention has been focused. God has just ordered all this. So all the attention is focused on a king. And now you can turn your attention. And there's this man standing there with chains on his arms. I should have brought a few chains in and worn this morning. And, uh, and Paul, he doesn't start off by opening his mouth. We'll get to that a little bit more in a, in a moment. He starts off with a gesture. At the end of verse 1, it says, uh, Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. What a privilege. He got to answer. No one was putting words in Paul's mouth. Uh, he, he has more respect here before King Agrippa than he had the chief priests. Of course, you remember they smote him in the mouth. Now, Paul's able to answer for himself, and he says in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. So, <clears throat> I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day 
before thee, touching all the things whereof I'm accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So let's look at a few things about the way Paul and Agrippa interact, because that's the key, isn't it? If we're going to share our testimony, if it's going to be a powerful testimony, you have to have a good interaction, right? You have to have a good, a good interaction. Now, what's amazing here is Paul is the prisoner, right? And, and he's standing before a king. And most people in these circumstances would probably be a little nervous. They might have a little sweat trickling down the back of their neck, uh, uh, their armpits, whatever the case. I don't want to get too graphic. You know, they might have a little puddle on the floor even. I don't know. But the reality is this. Paul is very comfortable in this environment because he's used, I, I mentioned this last week, Paul has already spent a lot of time in the king's presence, but it wasn't King Agrippa's presence. Before we ever go out and try to open our mouth, you know, it's really good to, to just go to prayer and spend some time in the, in the, court, in the, in the courtroom of heaven, right, in the, in the holy place. So Paul, he's a comfortable standing before a King Agrippa because, he, well, he's before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when he is feeling a little down and out, like he was in chapter 24 in verse 11, well, then the Lord himself shows up and says, hey, Paul, it's okay, man. I'm with you. I'm going to go with you all the way. I mean, so Paul had a unique relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as the apostle of the Gentiles, and God was encouraging him in this. So number one, what we see is that Paul awaits an open door before opening his mouth. I believe that Paul obviously spent time before the Lord, but he also... He, he, he waits for the open door before opening his mouth. The blank is mouth if you're filling the blank type. Thou art permitted to speak for thyself, Agrippa says. Now, Paul has no intention of speaking for himself. That's a good rule. He's not there to speak for himself. He's not there to get himself out of a jam. Like I might be like, hey, let me tell you about all this. You know, he's, he's not even thinking about getting himself out of a jam. All he's concerned about is preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so this is why Paul wrote to the Ephesians and asked them to pray for him. Because he says in Ephesians 6.20, I'm an ambassador in bonds. I mean, Paul's mindset was fixed. I am now an ambassador in bonds. Well, who's he representing? Well, he's representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Paul understood he, he was there on official business as the ambassador of Christ as the ambassador of God Almighty. He, he, need, he had no need to defend or explain himself. He only wanted to explain to his audience of powerful Jews and Romans, and Ro- these are Gentiles for the large part, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, of the Jews' hope. Um, <clears throat> well, that was a mess. I shouldn't use. There we go. Uh, he was the fulfillment of the Jews' hope and the Gentile salvation. And so Paul understands that God has ordered this from his salvation. And we've seen this before in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, uh, where Paul was called uh, to, vote, to minister to, the, to Gentiles, uh, to the Jews, um, and to kings. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, the Bible says, um, it says, But the Lord said unto him, This is the day he was saved, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We're going to see that the the Gentiles come up quite a bit here uh, as Paul is talking to Agrippa. But Paul is going to stand before King Agrippa and speak about the hope of Israel and its benefits to the Gentiles in these next 22 verses. And so, uh, to our knowledge, this is the first time that Paul has spoken 
before a king in his history. Now, Paul's spoken in a lot of places, and maybe he had spoken to a king, I'm not sure. But this is what, in Acts, this is where it's recorded for the first time. He's speaking to a king, and this is a fulfillment of what happened the day he got saved. You know God has a plan for your life? He has a plan for you to, to, to get before certain people. Now, Paul's done a lot of ministry. He's been on a lot of miles. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of miles on the car, man. The engine has been well-worn. I mean, this guy, he's traveled a lot. He's got the scars to prove it, right? He, he is a living epistle, and, he, and, and it's written in his skin, you know, how many times he's been beaten, all that stuff. I and mean, he's gone a long way in life, and he still hasn't stood before King Agrippa. But God had this in mind the entire time. Sometimes as we get older in life, it's, it's like, hey, man, it's all over. Actually, it's not all over. Some of the most important work that Paul is doing, uh, like standing before King Agrippa and then eventually Caesar and also writing his prison epistles are done in the twilight days of his life. So don't ever stop running your race. You ever see those races where somebody gets full of themselves and then they get to the end of the finish line, they start loafing a little bit, and then somebody just overtakes them. Paul says, man, I'm running, I'm running this race to win it. I'm not doing this so I can just, uh, you know, coast across the finish line. He's going all the way. He's going all out. And so here he is. He's finally standing literally before King Agrippa in fulfillment of what God said all the way back in Acts chapter 9 in his first days of being born again as it's being revealed what Paul will be doing in the ministry. We'll get into that a little bit too next week. But God had this in mind since the moment he met Paul on the road to Damascus. God saved you and I for this purpose. Uh, it's important that you find out what it is that God has saved you to be so you can do that which God has saved you to do so you can get busy about fulfilling it because no matter when you get saved and no matter how long you live, your time is short. Your life is a vapor. My life is a vapor. We have to be about the business. So God's will is his word. God will direct our life so we can fulfill his plan. You know, Paul didn't have to try to preach to kings. He simply had to be faithful to preach and leave it up to God to place him before kings. Paul really wasn't concerned about booking appointments to make sure he got before dignitaries. He just did what he was supposed to be doing wherever he was doing it, and then God, in in the circumstances of life, put him where he needed to be. And that's why it's so important that we know who we are in Christ, right? That we, we we are who God saved us to be, and we're about the business that God saved us to be about, and he'll put you where he needs you. And so, you know, when I was a little child in the Lord, you know, the book of 1 John, it talks about little children, young men, and fathers. When I was a little child in the Lord, uh, back in 1987, I got saved March 25th, 1987. I had this little map on my wall, man, and I had dots on it. And I'm like, man, God, you've called me to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth, and preach the gospel. And, and even though I'd been through discipleship one, and, and I'd even discipled a few people, in my, in my, you know, my mind was still a young skull of mush. And so all I could see is the need to be like Billy Graham and go to every dot on the map, you know, and, and preach like, like Billy Sunday or, or D.L. Moody, like an evangelist. You know, I thought, man, maybe I'm an evangelist. I'm going to go preach to everybody all over the world, you know. And, uh, and so I started putting these dots on the map because I knew I was called to preach the gospel. It never occurred to me that maybe I should be a pastor. But anyway, uh, and so, you know, that was good. And I just, and just, you just work with that. Just work with the first thing that God gives you, which you know that you're supposed to be doing. And just do that. I can remember how God stirred me up on that when I came back from my first missions trip. I was still just in high school. And I come down I-29 and, uh, uh, from, uh, from uh, Monmouth. And uh, that's before Mike Blake was even there. This is way back in the day. Uh, 
And, uh, and man, I tell you what, we, we came down the highway and it was night. And uh, the, light, the city lights of Kansas City were lit up with, with just all the street lights, you know, as we came down through Liberty or wherever it was on the, in the interstate there. And I was just like, man, Lord, I went all the way up to Monmouth, Illinois to do this lock-in and preach the gospel. That day, as a matter of fact, I preached the gospel. It was a key, key opportunity to this guy, that, this young man that wanted to get saved, and he wouldn't get saved. He says, well, man, I, I've got something I want to do tomorrow, and it's, it's really not congruent with getting saved, and I can't get saved and do that tomorrow. And I was begging this guy. I'm like, oh, just trust Jesus today. He, he will take care of tomorrow. Don't worry about what you want to do tomorrow. Worry about what Jesus is doing today. And I just begged this guy, and he wouldn't get saved, you know, and he wouldn't placate me, which was good. I'm glad he didn't. And I had to walk away from that going, man, I can't believe that guy didn't get saved. I just couldn't believe it because I knew that God got the message through. Very appropriate for the text that we're looking at. And I was really encouraged that day. The pastor, I went up to the, well, one of the, one of the ladies could see I was just so freaked out by this that uh, because I was young in the Lord, usually if someone didn't get saved, I'd put the arm behind the back, you know, wrench it a little bit and force it. We get a false conversion there, you know. So uh, anyway, so uh, so that wasn't happening. And so uh, it was Deb Crawford grabs me, takes me to the pastor, and says, "Man, Brian's a little down and out." And the pastor says, "What happened?" And uh, I told him. And he's like, "Oh, praise the Lord." And I was just like, "What? Praise the Lord? The guy's lost. He's going to die and go to hell." But the point was, you know what? I didn't. And the pastor didn't even explain himself. <laughs> so I was left sitting there going, "What in the world is that about?" And then it occurred to me as I was driving. I had the whole trip home to think about this. You know, I thought, you know what? Praise the Lord. Our job is just to get the gospel out. We can't, we can't dictate who receives it. Man, Paul is just doing what he does. He's just getting the gospel out. When you're young and zealous in the Lord, if that's all you know to do is preach the gospel, then preach the gospel. Who cares? Just do it. You're going to mess up. You're going to wrench people the wrong way. You're going to do a lot of things. I remember when I first got saved, my mom's probably watching right now. My sister, I don't know if my mom remembers this, but I went to my, I don't know if my sister's watching. She may be, but I went to my sister's house, Christine, and I remember, I was so excited about the Bible. I didn't know anything. I'm sitting there at the, at the, at, I remember at the, I remember the time I did this at the coffee, at her coffee table, and she's very gracious and kind listening to me. I have good sisters, and, uh, and so, I, I get off on the tangent of, and did you know that when, if it wasn't for sin, you wouldn't have pain in childbearing? <laughs> and uh, I could see the countenance changed, you know. And all of a sudden, she's, I'm telling her she's a sinner, and that's why she had pain when she had a child. <laughs> and and uh, Which isn't altogether not, you know, it's not altogether untrue, but I didn't understand how to, like, work those nuances in sharing the gospel. And I just was shooting everything I had like a shotgun. And so my mom said, hey, Brian, you need to, you need to tone that down. And, uh, and so I was like, really? I didn't even know that. But you know what? Praise God. My sister still loves me, and I think. But anyway, uh, so the point is simply this, is that, you know what? It's better to be zealous and preach the gospel than to not preach the gospel at all. Because God will take care of you, and he'll also take care of the results. But it is good to grow. As I become a young man in the Lord, like it talks about in First John, I'd say about 2004 to two, uh, about now uh (laughs) you know what god really showed me that it's important uh, to really do this right if you really want to accomplish the great commission it's going to be intricately tied to your relationship with the local new testament church because god doesn't need a cowboy what he needs is a local new testament church that reproduces disciples that reproduces local new testament churches right so to really accomplish the mission you've got to really equip yourself in the word of god to accomplish the mission of god and the power of god for the glory of god and that's all done by the grace of god now, Paul's on the back side of this. So Paul's now a father. 
And so in my fatherly years, which I, I kind of predict is about like 2023 through 2052, that pretty much runs out my race and finishes my course, uh, I pray that I'll be able to encourage my spiritual children and grandchildren in the Lord to reproduce well beyond what I could ever ask or think. Why? Because, well, at the end of the day, you know what? We need to make sure we understand God's will is about getting God's word where it needs to go. And that is also, that's very important in regard to getting the gospel where it needs to go. But the Apostle Paul has also, has an entire army all across Europe and, uh, and uh, that, that of men and women that are born again and local churches that have been founded. And so when Paul goes and speaks to Caesar, uh, not many days hence, you know what? And he goes on to heaven, there is an incredible impact because of the, the not just the, the gospel uh, uh, crusades that he had, but the time that he invested the word of God, the, the whole counsel of God's word, the doctrine of God's word. The gospel isn't just telling people that Jesus died and was buried and risen again. Once you receive that, you spend the rest of your lifetime uh, swimming in that ocean of information because you begin to really learn who God is. And it's not until you leave this earth and enter his presence that you will really fully grasp all of what that means. But the reality is, man, you want to learn as much as you can while you're here. That's why it's important to have a discipleship relationship. That's why the local church is so important. If it wasn't for the local church, I'd be, I'd be at some mission somewhere probably right now preaching the gospel because I was real happy to do that, and I was real encouraged in that. But Paul, you know what? Not only, not only was Paul you know, very uh, wise, I mean, he was respectful, but in, in regard to that, he waited to open his mouth, but he also had a proper disposition. I like the way he says in verse 2, I think myself happy. I mean, you know, that's just a, that's just a, when you think of the word happy, who's that dude, he had the song, Happy, just a few years ago, the dumbest song on the earth, I'm happy, you know, and you're just dancing around, the whole world goes crazy over it, because we all want to be happy, you know, uh, uh, there's another song, if you're really old like me, you can remember, don't worry, be happy, when you hear the word happy, you just want to smile, man, you want to be happy, because we all want to be happy, so Paul shows up, now, he could have, he could have said, hey, Thank you, King. I'm glad to be here after two years. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I mean, really, you guys should have let me go, but now I'm going to Caesar. So, huh? You know, he didn't have that attitude at all. Doesn't mention it. Doesn't mention any of that. He shows up and says, "Hey, man, I'm happy." His disposition is joyful. He says, "I'm happy. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall uh, answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I'm accused of the Jews." He is, and I believe when Paul said that, he wasn't blowing smoke. I believe he was sincerely happy to stand before King Agrippa and, and because he understood that Agrippa's knowledge afforded him liberty to preach the gospel with great clarity because he doesn't have to explain Judaism at all to King Agrippa. King Agrippa knows the Bible. He knows the law and the commandments and the prophets. He understands exactly where Paul's coming from. So this is like going to be easy peasy for the Apostle Paul to communicate the gospel. He truly is happy. He has a great disposition. Man, do we get happy? Many people, when they have an opportunity to preach the gospel, you know what they are? They're scared. But you know, we need to change our disposition. We need to be happy. We need to be joyful. When God opens that door of utterance, man, bring the joy of the Lord with you. Why? Because it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Yeah, that's right. It's just strength. So Paul could have been uh, like some of us and said, you know, King Agrippa, I'm going to tell you a thing or two. Of course, that would be foolish. Uh, I've been illegally in prison for two years, and I'm upset and angry with this entire kangaroo court. I got my rights. That's what Laodicean would probably say. The government didn't take care of me. <laughs> well, they've been taking care of me for two years, but I don't like it now. You know, whatever. We're never going to be happy, right? So the, the bottom line is this. Paul's not, he's not coming with that attitude at all. 
Paul understood that he was, was only bound. He was only bound because God wanted him bound for such a time as this. I believe that Apostle Paul understood that all of this was all about where God was going with him. Paul addressed himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ five times in three New Testament epistles. In Ephesians 3, 1, 4, verse, uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, 2 Timothy 1, 8, and Philemon, uh, cha- uh, well, there's only one chapter, but verses 1 and 9. So Paul's disposition was great because he knew that he was fulfilling God's plan for his life even as a prisoner. There's some brothers today, I'm certain, in some places today uh, in this world that are in prison if they're still alive. And you know what? They're doing that because that's what God's called them to for right now until they get to go to heaven or go back to their families. But persecution exists even to this day, and it's very prolific even now. Sometimes God calls some of our brothers and sisters into that, but you know what the Bible commands us to do is pray for them. We're to pray for those in prison bonds. We need to make sure we don't forget them. As, uh, and some of us think we're in prison because we got on a, a quarantine. You ain't seen nothing yet. And so, man, but Paul was able to endure all of that. And then when the door opened, Paul didn't count his life dear at all. He just was ready to preach the gospel. So Paul honors Agrippa's expertise as well. Not only does he have a great disposition, but he honors Agrippa's expertise. In verse 3, he says, Especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, this is not flattery, but an acknowledgement of King Agrippa and, Paul, and, and Paul's competency. Number one, the fact that the Apostle Paul already knows the dossier on Agrippa says something. Paul's no ignorant Jew standing there. He knows who Agrippa is. He knows what Agrippa knows. And in a way, it almost makes Paul appear with Agrippa because Paul happens himself to be an expert in the law. So he's an expert lawyer. Agrippa's competency in understanding the law of Moses and the traditions of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees is, very, uh, is, uh, is, <clears throat> is really important to what Paul's about to say in Acts 26, verses 4 through 23. So he's, he is really sincere, and he's also very wise in bringing that up before Agrippa. He's finding common ground. He's not lying. He's not flattering. He's being honest. He's like, I, I am glad to be before you, and you are an expert in the law. Now, this guys he's having an affair, it appears, with his own sister. I mean, he's a, he's a wretched sinner. He needs Jesus Christ. He's the biggest hypocrite I think I've ever heard of. I mean, come on. A guy that knows that much Bible, that much information about God, and yet lives like hell. Paul doesn't get into all of that. He lets the Holy Spirit take care of that. He finds a common ground with this man that is actually where they're mutually, uh, they're, they're kind of mutually uh, in agreement because both of them are scholars in their own right. Both of them are going to talk at a level, and that's why they're there, because Paul, uh, Festus isn't smart enough to figure out, well, he's pretending he's not smart enough to figure out what Paul's about, and then and then uh, Agrippa, of course, being the, the big shot, uh, you know, steward of the temple um, treasury and, and the king uh, of the north there, uh, he, is, he is standing before uh, Agrippa and making some common ground by just acknowledging his expertise. That's a wise thing to do if you're going to witness to somebody. He didn't say, hey, Agrippa, listen, you're a sinner. Turn or burn, pal. No, he doesn't do that. He knows Agrippa's full of pride. So he just, he just says, hey, Agrippa, I am glad to be before you because you are an expert in the law. He just speaks the truth, and he's, he's kind in the way he does it. Uh, and he's sincere. He's not lying. Paul will ask two questions in, in this chapter, and both will test the resolve of Agrippa, not only to understand what the Scripture says, 
but to apply it to his life. So Paul's not going to hold back on Agrippa. As a matter of fact, he's going to put him, he's going to put the screws, so to speak, proverbially to, to him. He's going to pin him down. He's going to get the sword out. We'll talk about that next week. But, but Paul is very wise in the way he, he honors his expertise. And Paul honors King Agrippa's time as well. At the end of verse 3, he says, Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Patiently. He's respectful of King Agrippa's time and his position among the Romans and the Jews. Agrippa does not have to listen to Paul. You remember that Festus kind of had to sweet-talk him into it. And, and Paul is showing respect as he asks King Agrippa to hear me patiently. He's saying, would you give me some space here? Because I'm going I'm I'm to share some things with you, King Agrippa. You know, there's a time when witnessing, when it's better to ask, is this a good time? Or, hey, can we schedule a time to discuss this? Uh, not every time, right? Sometimes you just need to go with it. And when you got the opportunity, you just go. But there are times when you do need to be considerate of who you're talking to in their time. I remember reading a, a, a Billy Graham uh, when he met with President Harry Truman. He botched it big time. The reason why is he was not, the first time he met with him, he was not respectful. He learned a big lesson. He went out and told the media what they had. They had a private conversation he went out and told the media everything they said. And, uh, you know, there's men of a lot lesser, um, probably moral character, like J. Frank Norris, that did not do that. Uh, you know, and he learned, and, and uh, he l- l- repented of that, actually. And he wrote about it somewhere in a book I read in his own words. And he's like, man, that was a big mistake. I didn't really honor President Truman. You know, well, why? Because, well, he was young. He's a young preacher, an evangelist, right? And he kind of got caught up in himself. Paul's like, hey, uh, King, I just want you to know, I do honor your position as king, and, and I just ask you to just, just hear me for a space. You know, honoring people's time is important. Know what you want to say and, and be ready to say it. Don't, don't waste their time. And Paul's very careful not to, to waste King Agrippa's time. If you recall the, the, the book of Esther, remember, uh, you remember Queen Esther, man, before she came before her own husband, Ahasuerus, to ask something of him? What did she do? She, she made two banquets. Because she knew this was going to be a big ask. And she, she took time to show, hey, this is a serious ask. And then finally she came and, 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 and asked the question, why was that? Well, this is why. Because Ahasuerus was a king. Now, in the United States, we don't have a lot of respect for kings. And praise God for that. We don't want a king, don't need a king. Hallelujah. Jesus is our king. Amen, amen. But the reality is, if God calls you to stand before a king or a dignitary... You need to remember these things because there is a protocol. I remember when I was a young, uh, when I was a young draftsman uh, in the, at, the, at the Fagan Company. Man, I tell you what, I just, I, was just, I just didn't understand the boundaries. They were so kind to me. I just thought I could walk in the president's office anytime I want when I had a question. Because they kind of led me to believe that. <laughs> but one day I did it at the wrong time. And man, the look I got, I was like, oh. You know what I realized? I was a little bit rash. I was taking a little bit too much liberty with the president of the company. Uh, he wasn't my personal uh, uh, tutor, right? I praise God he was so gracious to me that I realized, you know what, I overstepped it. Sometimes when you're young, you get a little zealous, man. You, you, don't kinda, you don't really feel the limits. You don't really understand the authority structure. You need to, as we grow in the Lord, as you go through life, you kind of get a little bit more attuned to that, especially as you step on toes as well. So, so make sure you, you work on that. If you're young, I'm not, I'm not discouraging zeal, man. Be zealous, if nothing else. But as you grow in the Lord, man, continue to grow in wisdom. Continue to assess the situation, to know who you're talking to, not just what you're talking about, because that's really important in witnessing. Apostle Paul did that. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
Man, he was respectful. But not only was he respectful, he was knowledgeable. Right? He was knowledgeable. This just segues nicely. Imagine that. And so, and so <laughs> he was knowledgeable. He was really equally on a equal, probably a superior par to his own audience. I mean, the guy was sharp as a tack. And so it says in verse 1, I'm going to back up to verse 1. When Paul was given permission to speak, he says, Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I like the way the Holy Ghost records that. Uh, it says, Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. Before we even actually get into words, I think Paul preached a message just in the way he, he brought himself, his body, before King Agrippa. And why do you say that? Well, first of all, he understands his audience. He knows where he's at. We read about the great pomp and circumstance and, the, you know, Festus setting this whole thing up so Agrippa looks like a man and Agrippa, you know, just at the few powerful words as you may speak, you know. So what's Paul do? He doesn't even open his mouth yet and he's preaching a message. He, he stands up and he, and he, and he makes a sign for, that an, order, an orator would make. Now, you don't do this unless you actually know what you're doing. Paul knows what he's doing. He's a man that, that actually belongs in that room. But while he's doing that, Right, so everyone knows this guy Paul, man. This look at this prisoner. I mean, he actually he knows how to handle himself in front of this incredible crowd of people. Who is this guy? You know, there's people sitting around going, "Man, this guy, he's been watching a lot of television." Well, wait, there isn't no television. How's he know how to? How's he know how to do all this? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. He was in the, he was a, a Pharisee. Okay, and he'll get into all that in his testimony before he even opens his mouth. He he puts his hand up. Now this is different from. Like what he did over in Jerusalem when everybody's going crazy and he says, hey, can I speak? And he's like, sure. And he's like, calm, you know, we would do this, you know, calm down, calm down, you know, bring it down. You know, it's not like that at all. Uh, there's actually, I found a Latin word about that long. I'm not even going to try to repeat it. But there's actually a, a name for this uh, that orators would do at that time. But Paul, he, he, he gestures in a way that everyone in the room knows, okay, this guy's about to say something. And it was appropriate. But when he does this, you know what? There's a chain hanging off his arm. And there's chains tied to two Roman soldiers. Now that's a unique sign. You don't see very many men stand in front of that kind of group and do everything properly. And then there's, he's got chains on him and Roman soldiers attached to him. Before he even opens his mouth, he's preaching a message. That, hey, I, I belong in this room, <laughs> but these bonds don't. You know, He didn't even have to open his mouth. If you're watching, you're going, man, this guy, this guy, what's he doing in bonds? You know, that's really what everyone's asking. Festus is like, why are we sending him to Caesar? What are we doing with this guy? Well, God's got him in those bonds. He's a bond slave for Christ. Paul knew he was standing before a king, a governor, and many powerful political, professional, and religious Romans, and, as well as Jews. And he doesn't start saying, you know, to the unknown God whom you ignorantly worship. He doesn't do that. And he did that in Acts. He gets up and he says, to the unknown God who you ignorantly worship. And he, he preaches it. I kind of like that. You know, I think it's pretty cool. But in Athens, he doesn't just do what he's done before. He's sensitive to the Spirit of God. He understands what's going on. And he presents himself in a way that's appropriate and, and, uh, for the, the, the occasion. Um, you know, Paul then stretched forth his hand. That was, that was not a hand gesture that, that uh, many would probably use that were prisoners but very, many, very few prisoners would probably get a personal audience with Agrippa either. And so the gesture was something a ruler was seeing as a professional, that, that Paul was a professional orator. And you can imagine the image as Paul makes that gesture 
And those Roman guards are sitting there watching him. By now, I'm sure he's done a lot of witnessing to those dudes as well. And so his attention to detail is revealed, is really what it's revealing. And this is the bottom line, is, is Paul, in the midst of all this, has never lost his dignity. In the midst of his imprisonment, his incarceration, and all the two years of, you know, a guy that gets punched in the mouth and, and certainly is not happy with the chief priest himself personally, and he made that known. I mean, Paul's not a guy that's without temperament, but yet he's temperate. And in the midst of all the injustice, he, he keeps his dignity, and he honors the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of these. I, I would encourage us right now as a time. So there's some people getting pretty hot under the collar, right, about a lot of things. But you really got to make sure as a Christian you keep your focus on things above, right, and serve the king of kings first. And then it'll help adjust your temperament when you deal with all the other things. I remember a few years ago, there's a big hoopla over the common core, which I still hate. But the, 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 instead of getting mad and, and going to the principal and, you know, I don't want my kids learning about socialism or whatever, which I, I don't like that either. But anyway, um, you know what? Instead, I, you know what I did? I just made an appointment with Beth Mulvey, and I just sat down. I said, hey, Beth, uh, this is my concerns and this is not just my concerns for my children. I'm coming to talk to you because this is what my concerns are for the school district and for all the school districts in the state of Missouri. If we keep going down this road, and it's going to hurt you and the teachers. And I just made an argument. I won't tell you the outcome. But the point is simply this. It's wise to, to, to talk to people with some wisdom and understanding and bring your evidence. Like, go to this link. Go to this. And, you know, before you know it, we're in the book club together, and we're sharing resources. And I'm learning what she knows, and she's learning what I know. Very productive. I didn't, I'm taking my kids out of school because this is communism or whatever. I did, didn't do that, right? Because you know why? You've got to understand, the teachers and the principals have very little control. They're just trying to get a paycheck, man. They're just trying to, get their, they're just trying to live like you are. So you've got to be wise when you address things like that. Now, Paul's in a, in a spiritual situation, and the point is this. He could go political, but he doesn't. He stays focused on God's mission. He could go, he could go talk about his rights as a Roman citizen, He's already exercised him. You know, he's, he's going down. But he doesn't have to. He's preaching the gospel. And so let me give you some practical application when it comes to preaching the gospel. That's why we're talking about this. Because we need to be knowledgeable of nonverbal communication when we witness to people. Uh, just simple things like looking people in the eyes, smiling, right? And say, hey, I'm happy to be here. Uh, paying attention and listening when other people speak. Sometimes my wife says, Brian, shut up. I'm like, yeah, I got two ears and one mouth, so... You need to listen more, she said. She, she critiques me, and she's, she's really good at it. I like to talk, if you can't tell. And then and all, another thing is just uh, body language. You know, if, uh, if you're talking to somebody, and you're yawning, and you're slumped over, and you're falling asleep. I remember when we first came. Thank you. Beverly and Mark Newland are so kind. First time we, uh, uh, we were trying to plant the church, we were working long hours, and we, we uh, went to visit them. One of us, myself or Amy, I won't tell you which, fell asleep while we were trying to talk to him. Because it was like 10 o'clock at night or 9.30 at night, and we'd been commuting. We were living in Independence, and, and we were just exhausted. And uh, it was funny. And Beverly was so kind. Uh, she knew that we were just tired. And, uh, man, I tell you what, that's not a really good impression <laughs> to leave with somebody. I'm really interested in you, you know. So I'm sorry, Cindy, my mother-in-law, sometimes at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter or whatever, I'm 
after a Sunday of preaching, then I go to their house for dinner. And I was like, I'm on the loo. I'm trying to stay awake. <laughs> I'm over there sleeping on the couch. Not the best way to t- let people know you're engaged. So if you're witness to somebody, your bodily presence, man, you need to be in. Your eyes, your, 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 your ears, your, you know what? Maybe a firm handshake, right? If you're going to witness to a dude on the construction site and he sticks his hand out, you better have a firm grip. You don't want some mealy mouth hand, you know, just some wimpy handshake. And uh, you need to know how to shake someone's hand, stuff like that. Little things matter when you're trying to witness to people. Uh, I remember going to the, the, the back in the day, uh, the Billy Graham crusades. One of the last things I always tell you is, hey, bring some breath mints. They even tell us that when we go to the, the thing down here at the, the Royals. The fact that they have to tell you, that's kind of sad. But what they're saying is, hey, make sure you have good breath. You don't want to turn somebody off because you got bad breath or you don't know how to dress appropriately for the occasion, et cetera, et cetera. Language. You know, you know how to talk to people. You know, cut the slang. If you're, if you're amongst a bunch of educated folks, then you know what? You need to, kind of, you need to beef up the language if you can. And, uh, you know, cut down on the colloquialisms and so on and so forth. Speak appropriately before the people that you're addressing. And so there's times when you uh, have a different type of speech and there's times when you have another. Now, I'm not telling anyone to go out and cuss. I hate when that happens. A lot of Christians compromise there. But anyway, when I first started preaching at HBF, one of my disciples was very gracious to me and said, Hey, Brian, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm like, what? He's like, you're using words I don't understand. I was like, oh. And it was a really good lesson to me to say, you know what, I need to... Not that he was dumb at all. He wasn't dumb. But I was, I was coming out of a more professional uh, urban setting. And every day of my life, I was using talking to engineers and people like that and project managers and so on and so forth. And I was just using words that were common to my own my vocational vocabulary. They weren't even appropriate for preaching. So I had to start cutting those words out because they didn't work. Conversely, though, I remember one time I threw out a, a phrase and I said, I was talking about discipleship and I used the military term force multiplier. David Cundiff said, man, the day you said that, I finally got discipleship. I really got what you were saying about how you wanted discipleship to work. Why? Because that, that resonated with him because he came from a military background. Your, your communication, your verbal communication, your body communicate, all of those things are important when witnessing and talking to other people. So Paul is using nonverbal language, and that is very important. So we see that he's respectful, he's knowledgeable, and he's also credible. In verses 4 and 5, it says, My manner of, uh, my ma- my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, Know all the Jews with, with, <clears throat> which uh, knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. You see, Paul points out his testimony among all the Jews from his youth was that of a devout Pharisee. And so he's, he's there and he's ready and he's attentive and he's paying attention and he's tuned in and he says, Hey, listen, um, you can talk to any of the, the Jews that you know that knew me from my youth, and they're going to tell you, I lived very, very straight life as a Pharisee. I was a strict adherent to the law of Moses. That's, in essence, what he's telling Agrippa. And I suspect Agrippa already knew this uh, because Paul was a pretty prominent person among the Jews. It's funny how the commentators act like Paul didn't know his accusers and stuff. I'm like, I'm sure Paul knew a lot. I mean, he probably didn't know every one of them. He probably knew many of them, certainly. Um, uh, And so... Uh, he's pointing this out because Agrippa has <clears throat> access to the people that Paul's referring to. He's probably got names and faces in mind. He's like, hey, go talk to Joe over there. He grew up with me. He knows all about me. 
And so the Romans, uh, uh, the Roman steward of the temple and the treasury was, had complete access to whoever he wanted to talk to about the apostle Paul. So Paul's challenged him. He's like, hey, just go back and check out my, uh, my history. Check me out. See if I, I am who I say I am. And he could ask any number of Pharisees or priests to confirm Paul's credentials. As a matter of fact, it was Paul's credentials that threatened them so. Because this was an elite Pharisee. And for a man like this to go that way and follow Christ was an incredible insecurity for everybody among the Jewish leadership. That's why they wanted to kill him and make an example out of him. So there's no doubt the way Paul is conducting himself makes his Hebrew education also very apparent. The Jews were often noted for their literacy and their educational prowess in the Roman Empire. They were often, uh, uh, Jews were often used as tutors for children because they were so uh, literate and educated. And the Pharisees were knowledgeable of the law and were Bible literalists, as were the Sadducees. <clears throat> as, and uh, the Sadducees assimilated Greek philosophy and allegorical methods as Bible scholars do today. And so <clears throat> they know that just by what Paul says, he's like, okay, this guy... He's a, he's a KJV only, right? He's a Masoretic text only guy, and he believes every word literally of what that Bible promises to the nation of Israel. That's who I'm talking to. So Agrippa all knows who he is talking to. And when Paul mentions he was following the straightest sect of our religion, he includes Agrippa. He's like, right, Agrippa, you're with me. Uh, uh, of course, he knows that Agrippa's li- living loose. But he, said he, would, he also understood Agrippa would understand what that means theologically. A literal interpretation of the scripture, this time the Masoretic text. A belief in the coming Messiah to deliver Israel nationally. A belief in a resurrection in Ezekiel 37 of the nation of Israel. A belief in the sacrificial system, the temple, and the administration of the laws of Moses. A belief in the authority of biblical prophecy and the prophets. All the things that the Jews were counting on Agrippa to protect and advocate for them before the Roman rulers. Paul says, this is who I am. You can check me out. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a straight-on straight Pharisee. And so our credibility, what it does is, is it should clarify our gospel presentation, not cloud it. It should clarify our gospel presentation, not cloud it. Paul doesn't throw out his credentials to cloud the gospel. He's actually throwing out his credentials. He doesn't do this all the time, but in this setting it was appropriate that he gives his credentials. In some settings, people don't care what your degree is. In other settings, if you don't have a degree, you might as well shut your mouth. So Paul is saying, I have the credentials to speak to you right now, King Agrippa. And you can ask anybody that's accusing me if I have the credentials. Because everyone knew it was true. And this is not to cloud the gospel. This is actually to clarify and open the door. I tell you, to be honest, I am limited in some ways because I don't have those credentials among certain people. They won't even listen. Because they don't have a Ph.D. in theology, et cetera, et cetera. Now, a lot of people go, oh, that's stupid. All you need is Jesus. That is true. That is all you need. But I do know people, once they get a Ph.D., what have you, they are, they're arrogant. And they won't listen unless you have an, an equal acumen as they do. And so, hey, if you can get it, get it. And allow God to open those doors. It's been said that one's actions can speak so loud that people can't hear what they're saying. So Paul's also letting them know, look, my actions from the, from the day of my youth till now line up. I'm not duplicit. I'm zealous for God. I'm no less zealous for God. Conversely, I'm no less zealous for God today than I was in my youth. So God's zeal, his zeal for God is actually brought into this place. He's getting ready to share that. So if people don't understand the gospel, may it not be because of our testimony making it unbelievable. 
Paul's testimony, his fact, the fact that he was absolutely committed to the word of God amplifies the fact that he is now following Christ. And he knows that's exactly what he's wanting to get across. So Paul's credibility as a Pharisee is what makes his conversion so incredible and so powerful. And so we see that Paul's respectful. We see that Paul's, uh, he's credible. And uh, we also understand, he's, by the way, he's, uh, he's cheerful, but he's also, he's hopeful. In verses 6 through 8, he speaks of this hope and this promise. He says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night, uh, uh, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Now, he's kind of putting it to Agrippa now. Uh, he's actually asking a question. So now Paul, the one that's in a position to be uh, interrogated, turns the interrogation around and says, Yeah, and since, I, since you know about all this, King Agrippa, uh, I, know, I know that you think it's no big deal for God to raise the dead, right? Because you believe the scriptures too. And of course, King Agrippa is just sitting there. He's not going to say a word because he knows he's going to placate all these Jews. Some are Sadducees, some are Pharisees. He's just sitting there. Okay, smart guy, what are you going to say next? See, there's a promise to the people Paul's pointing out. In Acts 26, 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made, unto, uh, made of God unto our fathers. Agrippa knows exactly what Paul's talking about. He understands Paul believes God will restore the nation of Israel in fulfillment of his word to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believes the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, literally. And he believes the seed of Abraham will multiply endlessly. He believes all nations of the world are blessed through Abraham's seed. And Agrippa would not deny that before the Jews of his life depended on it because there would be a revolt. And by the way, a few years from now in this text, there is a revolt. He also believes not only in the promise uh, of a people, the nation of Israel, he believes in the promise of a nation. He talks about the fathers. Then he goes on, he says, and under the promise of our 12 tribes... Specifically, he mentions the 12 tribes, which at that time are still dispersed. He says, uh, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. He's like, man, I line up with the Jews, and yet I'm accused because I believe what they believe. He goes further into the hope of the 12 tribes, which have not been functional as a unit since Solomon in 931 B.C. upon his death when Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom and ten tribes went to the north and, and Benjamin and Judah stayed in the south. I mean, they've been dysfunctional for that long, for thousands, over almost a thousand years. Well, about a thousand years at the time Paul's speaking, just over a thousand years. And then in 722 B.C., uh, Judah, or the ten tribes of the north were taken captive by Assyria. And then 606 B.C., uh, Babylon takes over Judah because of their sin and all of the Israel was in captivity until they came back into the land. And, and so there is not and there will not be 12 discernible tribes in Israel until the tri- tribulation period yet to come in the 144,000. And then in the millennium as well in the eternity future. But nonetheless, Paul says, hey, King, King Agrippa, I'm here because I believe the Bible literally. I believe God's going to do something with our nation and I don't just believe that as a general sense of a nation like it is today, 1948 to now. But I mean, he's going to be so specific. He's going to discern the 12 tribes and call us back into our respective inheritance and take us forward into the millennial reign. The same type of theology, by the way, that you might get at a Bible-believing church like ours. 
He's like, King Agrippa, you know this. You, you know how to, to discern, rightly divide the word of God. In Ezekiel 37 and verse 12, that's the promise that God would resurrect and regather Israel after the coming tribulation period in Daniel chapter 9. In Ezekiel 37 and verse 12, ironically, it deals with what Paul's already brought up, the hope of the resurrection. The apostle Paul, or I mean Ezekiel wrote, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and to bring you into the land of Israel. Paul is absolutely in belief of that, and he believes Jesus Christ is not just a resurrection, but the resurrection. In Matthew 19, 28, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus himself said, the twelve tribes of Israel will be back in business. Not just a nation of Israel. Not just a 1918 promise, not just a 1948 delivery, not, not, not just a 1960-some war, right? Not just some sort of peace accord. No, someday Israel will have their property, they will have 12 discernible tribes, and they will be back in business with the temple. Whoa. James, James himself, the apostle, wrote, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. They didn't know where they were all at, but they were scattered abroad. They didn't have a, a DNA testing back then. But they had naming. And, of course, they've been scattered abroad for, ever since because they rejected Jesus Christ. But Revelation 7, and I'm going to read it in detail. You can go back and look up Revelation 7, 4 through 8. But in that passage in Revelation 7, 4 through 8, you can see God is promising that in the tribulation, 12 tribes are going to be discernible. And then if you go back to Ezekiel, you'll see that there'll be another renaming of the tribes and distribution in the millennium to come. Paul says, hey, that's what we believe in, isn't it, Agrippa? The hope of Israel. God's people, God's nation. And Agrippa's going, sir, yes, sir, that's what we believe in, Paul. Now, he's not saying that verbally, but the way Paul asks that question, he knows that there's no way that Agrippa's going to say no. So the promise of the resurrection, it's very personal. In verse 8, Paul says, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? You know, Paul turns the tables and makes this personal for King Agrippa. In a way, Paul is putting Agrippa on the spot. He can ill afford to admit before the Jews who are gathered that he does not believe in the resurrection, and he cannot deny uh, that, is, that, is, that, uh, <clears throat> that is what is, I'm sorry, he, he cannot deny that it is clearly what the Hebrew Bible teaches. The Apostle Paul is putting him in a place where, hey, we believe the Bible, don't we? And here's a practical you know, application. There are times when you're, there's a conflict or there's a misunderstanding. And, and what Paul is just referring to is, well, the law, the Bible itself. The evidence is the Bible, which Agrippa would claim to believe. Many years ago, and I'm running out of time. I'll just skip that. But uh, I was going to illustrate that. I don't have time. So if our gospel presentation isn't personal, it's not practical. If our gospel presentation isn't personal, it's not practical. King Agrippa, he may be a king, but Paul's an an ambassador for the king of kings and the lord of lords. So he takes the king's expertise in the law and he lays him wide open in front of everybody. And there's really not a whole lot Agrippa can do about it at this point. And Paul is not scared at all because Paul is representing his king. And so he's like, hey, my king to your king, right? We believe in the authority of Scripture. Agrippa cannot deny the Scripture, and he cannot condemn what Paul is saying 
because he knows Paul's right. So far, Paul is making the same argument any number of the well-educated Pharisees might make in his stead. But Paul is probably more eloquent. And so Paul is setting Agrippa up to reveal to him how he has personally found the hope of his people and his nation in the person of Jesus Christ. But you're going to have to wait till next week to join me and see how all that goes. So I'm going to stop you there. But in conclusion, let's recap what we've learned. If you want to have a powerful testimony that's understandable, you've got to be respectful. You need to be knowledgeable, you need to be credible, and you need to be hopeful. But most importantly, and we'll see this next week, we've got to be truthful. That way, you know what happens? What happens is the Word of God does the work, and we'll let God get the results. If you're a Christian this morning, you know what? You need to join me in making a commitment this week to pray for open doors. If you'll do that and you're still hanging on to this message, man, write in the the message box or something. Say, hey, pray for me. I'm going to trust God for open doors, whatever you want to write. Let, let, respond to that call. There, the, you know what? This weekend we launched what's called the, the comfort ministry uh, to our community. And yesterday we, we hastily put this together just like, hey, we just need to offer some help to people. We ended up having eight people come by that needed food. We gave out food yesterday. We had a, one person that saw the social media feed and uh, somehow got it into her mind, had a situation, came out and sought some help. And so God was moving in that. You know what? We just got, we just got to go fishing for men. And we can't allow the circumstances to stop us from doing that. we just got to do what God's called us to do and let God take care of the circumstances, even if we're bound. So if you're saved, you know what? He's called us. He's called me. He's called you to share our faith. Many people uh, are concerned today. They have have, their hearts in crisis. They have no hope. They have no faith in the promises and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're willing to trust God, are we willing to trust God, I should say, to use us not, not Brian or the people at the door. I'm talking about you. Is he, is he going to, would you trust God to use you to walk through an open door? Would you pray even and say, God, I might be scared, but if you open a door, I will walk through it. Give me an understanding when the door opens. Help me to, help me to be ready for that. Help me to be respectful. Help me to be knowledgeable. Help me to be credible. Help me to be hopeful. Paul waited for over two years to stand before King Agrippa, and when he stood there, he was ready. Don't allow the frustration of not being able to go to work or not being able to move about like you normally would move. Don't allow those things to cloud your purpose and your mission. Paul didn't allow any of that stuff to stop him, even though when he made his gesture, he had a chain on his hand. Rather, use it for God's glory. Show people that you're serious about the gospel and nothing can deter you from Christ. Hey, let's pray for one another that God would give us open doors to minister to the lost. That's why God has put us here. And this morning, if you are lost, maybe you don't know Jesus as Savior. Maybe you have a religion like Agrippa, but you really don't have a relationship. You don't really know who Jesus is or what's going on regarding him. Man, I encourage you, you can contact us right here. There's someone manning the phone, 816-380-3033. They'll talk to you right now about how you can know the Lord as Savior. If you've got questions or maybe uh, you want to know more about anything I've talked about, you can, you can email us at contact at hbfcast.org. And we'll share with you personally how you can know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to get baptized. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to join our church. You know what? There's things coming up. Uh, you can, uh, I'm going to, um, baptisms on May 10th. Uh, I don't know how we would get that done. But, man, if, you, if you've gotten saved and uh, you're in discipleship and it's time to get baptized, let's trust the Lord for a way to get that done. Uh, I'm going to have a next steps meeting on May 3rd at 1 o'clock p.m. It'll be virtual. 
But if you're like, man, Brian, you know what? You're right. I need to get involved in a local church. What is that even about? Well, you know what? Tune in with me. Con- get contact at HBF dot, uh, hbfcast.org. Contact at hbfcast.org. Email me and say, hey, Brian, I want to go to the next steps meeting or put next steps in the heading. I'll get back with you and I'll get you set up for a meeting on May 3rd. And we'll talk about what are the next steps in your life? Is it salvation? Is it church membership? Is it baptism? You know, what is all that about? What are you, tell me, Brian, what is all that about? I don't know anything. Well, guess what? On May 3rd, if you want to, we can just have a, have a meeting, a virtual meeting, and we can figure all that out online. Uh, and so today, even from 1 to 3, would you pray? Maybe you're watching and you're in crisis. From 1 to 3, that we'll have some folks that will be socially safe at a distance, but if you need some food, we got, we got a little bit of food ready. We, we have some resources. If you're in crisis where we can help you, we can certainly, you just need someone to pray. That's the best thing we can do. We can pray with you. We can care for you. So, you know, praise God for all those opportunities. Next week when we get together, we're going to continue this study on the power of personal testimony, how it needs to be understandable, uncomfortable, and unassailable. So, uh, before we close up this, this morning, let me just have a word of prayer with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I pray